Let us open the Word of God this morning to Acts chapter 19. And as we begin, let me just express my deep gratitude and appreciation to the elders for allowing me the last two Sundays uh, some time away from my responsibilities to tend to some important matters, and I'm thankful for that, especially to Gary and Brian for preaching. It was uh, wonderful to sit under their teaching. Acts 19. And the focus of our attention will be verses 1 through 10. I was listening to a sermon by Billy Graham in which he said, quote, sexual sin is the great sin of America. Shockingly, he preached that sermon in the year 1958. 65 years later, those words seem to be a huge understatement. It is getting dark out there. And it will probably get even darker in the years ahead. No one in their right mind would deny that things are getting very difficult and times are getting very trying, especially for those who are of the faith. At the same time, our present darkness only serves to highlight the absolute relevancy of Paul's ministry in Ephesus which is what we find in Acts chapter 19. The city of Ephesus was in deep, deep darkness, not unlike our own world. So I want to approach this entire chapter by throwing down an anchor, one that has kept the church of Jesus Christ alive and well throughout the ages, even as the church does suffer and struggle throughout history. It is an anchor that remains unmoved even to this very day. It is a little verse tucked in the middle of chapter 19, literally. I'm talking about verse 20. And this will be our anchor for the next two weeks. Here's the anchor, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What I love about verse 20 is not just the hope-filled content of it and the power in it, which is quite obvious. I also love the fact that this verse is surrounded by a very, very dark context. And it is in that very context that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You and I, brothers and sisters, we must remember that darkness, no matter how thick and how widespread, it is never an obstacle for our mighty Lord and His Word. His Word shines brighter in the darkest places. Ephesus was a case in point. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, even though nothing seemed to have been favorable for the advance of the word. Now, if the book of Acts has taught us anything at all, is that the word of the Lord does not need a friendly or favorable environment in order to go forth in power. The word of the Lord thrives in the midst of darkness. Why? Because it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. So as the Apostle Paul came to Ephesus, he came wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, that's all we have. That is all we have. Consequently, light and life came to the city of Ephesus. As we are about to see in Ephesus, the word of the Lord preached by the Apostle Paul encountered four specific obstacles or spiritual barriers. This morning, we will consider the first two of these obstacles and how the word of the Lord overcame them. So here's the first. Here's the first obstacle over which the word prevailed. The word of the Lord in Ephesus prevailed over doctrinal immaturity. Over doctrinal immaturity. Verses 1 through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Three Sundays ago, we left off with Paul leaving Ephesus after a short stay there and going east to Antioch in Syria, where his sending church was located. And from Antioch, he started his third missionary journey, going west by land, as we learn in Acts 18, verse 23. Having gone through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples, the Bible says, in all the churches that he had planted, Paul made his way back to Ephesus. Apollos had already left for Corinth, but Aquila and Priscilla were still there. <clears throat> so briefly, what was Ephesus like? What was this city like? According to one commentator, Ephesus, quote, was an important cultural center boasting such attractions as art, science, witchcraft, idolatry, gladiators, and persecution, end quote. Now, we will dive into that context more so next Sunday. It will become very important. Moreover, Ephesus, we know, was home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, namely the temple to Artemis, also known as Diana, the goddess of Fertility, fertility. Idolatry had taken over the city of Ephesus, just like in Athens. The darkness in Ephesus was really, really thick. But notice Paul's ministry strategy as he goes to Ephesus. Before he goes out and deals with the actual idolatry or any other spiritual ailment in the city of Ephesus, he addresses something else first. 
he addresses something else first. His first order of business in Ephesus was not to deal with the outside world, but to find the church, but to find the church. And to Paul's surprise, the brothers in Ephesus were in a spiritually weak and immature condition. So here's the first question that I want to ask. Were these brothers in Ephesus, were they Christians? Were they Christians? That's an interesting question. In order to answer that question, please remember this. The book of Acts focuses on a period in redemptive history that is highly transitional. Highly transitional. Moving from the Old Testament dispensation into the New Testament dispensation where Old Testament shadows and New Testament substance, they overlapped. As such, the book of Acts recounts for us the stories of many people who were caught somewhere in between, somewhere in the middle. In this particular case, these Ephesian believers had received most of their knowledge from the ministry of John the Baptist, who technically speaking, we know, was the last Old Testament prophet since he came prior to Jesus Christ. Now, in connection to that, I want to ask the following question. What did John the Baptist no, and what did John the Baptist teach? If they were disciples of John the Baptist, what did John the Baptist know and teach? First, we know this, John the Baptist was the one who, seeing Jesus one day, pointed at Jesus, and what did he proclaim? What did he say? He said, behold, as he pointed at Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. What did John the Baptist know? Well, he knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the sacrificial lamb of God who had come to take away our sins. Therefore, it is not only possible, but likely that those who knew the teachings of John the Baptist would have known, at least in part, that the Messiah was the one who takes away our sin, which is a very basic but absolutely essential gospel truth. Is that truth enough to save a soul? Most definitely, yes. In March of 1867, as the Metropolitan Tabernacle was being repaired, Charles Spurgeon went and preached at an alternative location called the Agricultural Hall. The report goes that as Spurgeon was testing the acoustics of the place prior to the service, he quoted the words of John the Baptist, and with a loud voice, he said to an empty auditorium, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A worker who was just minding his own business heard Spurgeon's words and was thus converted to Christ. This is the message, my friends. This is what we do as a church. We point people to Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, and we simply say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what John the Baptist knew. This is what he knew. He knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the Lamb who takes away our sin, the, the one who, through his death on the cross, paid the price for our sins, and he satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. Do you know him? 
Do you know him? Are we standing upon this rock of the gospel, the good news that salvation is a free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord? Do we know that in Christ we are complete, that we lack nothing? Are we trusting that his death is sufficient and his resurrection is eternal? Here's the second thing that John the Baptist knew. John the Baptist also said this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, who is that? Jesus Christ. He who is coming after me will baptize you with what? With the Holy Spirit and fire. On top of knowing that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what else did John the Baptist know? He knew of the Holy Spirit. And not only of the Holy Spirit, but he knew that the Spirit did something in connection with the Messiah. He knew that the Messiah could baptize people with the Holy Spirit, which is way better than water. Therefore, it is not only possible, but likely that those who knew the teachings of John the Baptist in Ephesus would have also known about the Holy Spirit, at least of the Messiah being the one with the power and authority to give the Spirit. With all this in mind, can we say that these disciples were Christians, true believers? I believe we can. I believe we can. But then what do we make of verse 2? What does it mean when they said to Paul, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit? Well, based on what we read in chapter 18, and based on what John the Baptist knew, these are likely believers in Jesus who came to faith in Jesus under the preaching of You know it begins with an A. Apollos. It is likely that these are believers in Jesus who came to faith in Jesus under the ministry of Apollos. And what was the issue with Apollos' preaching? We saw this about three weeks ago. It was correct, but it was incomplete. It was correct, but it was incomplete. It was truthful, but it wasn't the full picture. Like Apollos, these believers had trusted in the Messiah, but were missing some very important information. Likely, they were missing Pentecost. Pentecost. They had not heard of Pentecost. So they had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit in the sense that they knew the Messiah came to save them from their sins, but they didn't know the rest of the story. They were stuck in between the old and the new. They didn't know that the Spirit had already come. Now, does this mean that you can be a believer in Jesus without the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. May it never be. That is an impossibility. No one can believe in the Messiah, even in the Old Testament, or confess Jesus as Lord apart from the Holy Spirit giving us faith in Jesus. This is clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. So the only way for these men to have believed in any meaningful sense, is if the Spirit had already granted them saving faith, even if they themselves didn't know about the Spirit's work. After all, are we not ourselves mostly unaware of what the Spirit is doing in our lives at any given moment? But much like Apollos, 
these disciples needed, to, needed a fuller confirmation of their faith. They needed to hear that Jesus had already accomplished redemption through his death and his resurrection, and that the Spirit had already been poured out by Jesus himself in his ascension. And upon hearing these things, the Bible says they were baptized. Notice that it doesn't say, on hearing this, they truly believed. It doesn't say that, no. They had already believed, but they needed a Christian baptism, a spiritual confirmation. Subsequently, they received the Holy Spirit as Paul laid his hands on them. Why did this happen? Once again, we must remember that these were transitional times that called for unique workings and operations of the Spirit. Something similar had happened in Samaria. If you remember in Acts chapter 8, after Philip had preached Christ to the Samaritans, both Peter and John went to Samaria to confirm that the Samaritans had indeed received the word by faith. You remember that story? So they personally, John and Peter, they personally went to Samaria. They confirmed that the Samaritans had indeed believed in Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them. Subsequently, the Bible says, they received the Spirit, but not for saving purposes, but for confirming and empowering purposes. Once again, you need to remember the transitional nature of the book of Acts. This is a transitional period in redemptive history. Therefore, the order of Christian conversion may not always seem uniform. Some people received the Spirit and then they were baptized, while others were baptized and then received the Spirit. But when you put all the teaching of the book of Acts together, and according to one commentator, John Stott, Acts presents conversion, Christian conversion, quote, as a cluster of four things. When you take all the book of Acts combined, repentance, faith in Jesus, water baptism, and the gift of the Spirit. That is Christian conversion according to the book of Acts. Repentance, faith in Jesus, water baptism, and the gift of the Spirit, though the perceived order may vary a little. The four belong together and are universal in Christian initiation. That is according to John Stott, which I agree with him. Therefore, in the book of Acts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is mainly a faith-confirming and mission-empowering seal, which takes us all the way back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I want you to turn there so that we remind ourselves of this all-important Verse. This is, we could say, the heart of the book of Acts. Now, remember what I said. In the book of Acts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is mainly a faith-confirming and mission-empowering seal. Now, listen to what the, the Word says in Acts 1.8. Remember, this is the heart of it all. Right before his ascension, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, but you will receive what? Power. Oh, this is what we're talking about, power, empowering. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So the Holy Spirit will empower you in order to fulfill a task. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in the book of Acts, the saving work of the Spirit whereby he gives us a new heart and faith in Jesus as the word is preached, remains somewhat concealed, hidden from view throughout the narrative in the book. 
the emphasis in Acts is rather upon his empowering work, empowering for the sake of witnessing. Therefore, what we see here is the first instance of the word of the Lord prevailing in Ephesus. It prevailed over the Ephesians' doctrinal immaturity in that the word established them in the gospel, bringing clarity, confirmation, and assurance in the spirit. Having received this clarity, the Spirit of the Lord worked in conjunction with the Word of God and gave them supernatural manifestations to confirm that their faith was real. And that was the gift of tongues. And this will be the last time that the gift of tongues is mentioned in the book of Acts. Now from this, I want to draw two important points of application for us. Number one, one. Before we can slay the dragons on the outside, how do you like that language? Before we can slay the dragons on the outside, we must allow sound gospel doctrine to be established within us first. In other words, we must seek to grow up in the faith. If the church is weak in sound gospel doctrine, their influence in the world will also be weak. In Ephesus, before Paul went around confronting other things in the culture, he sought to establish believers in the word as the first order of business. Paul took these immature Ephesians from doctrinal immaturity to a doctrinally more mature understanding of the gospel. And the living word of God did this as Paul taught it and the spirit of God applied it to their lives. Now, please allow me to dig a little deeper. Dig with me a little deeper into this, the importance of doctrine. There's a greater point of connection here that you need to follow very closely and very carefully. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and notice with me the close intimacy between sound doctrine and practical living as we read verses 8 through 11. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. Here Paul begins to uh, make reference to the Ten Commandments. For the law is for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to what? Sound doctrine. Oh, imagine that. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which, with which I have been entrusted. This is why the believers in Ephesus needed to be established in sound gospel doctrine before they could go outside and make a difference in Ephesus. You see, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, reveals something quite astonishing. 
It reveals that the darkness present in Ephesus and by default in any society is the result or the symptom of false what? Doctrines. False doctrines. Doctrines of demons. Corruptions of the truth. What the world needs then is sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul knew that the first order of business in Ephesus, before doing anything else, was to strengthen the believers in sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. Sound doctrine must take root within us before we can make a difference in the world outside of us. What are the signs, what are the signs that sound biblical doctrine is prevailing in your life? Well, it begins here, Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Interestingly enough, for instance, re confusion regarding homosexuality, transgenderism, or any other sexual perversion is ultimately what? A doctrinal issue. A doctrinal issue. Sexual purity is sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. Sexual purity is sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. Practically, this means that, for example, pornography will have no dominion over you. You must put it to death. And if you're engaged in it, you must be done with it immediately. Children, honoring your parents is sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. Are you walking in obedience to them? If not, you must repent, you must change your mind and do so immediately. Truth and sincerity are sound doctrine according to the gospel. Are you given to the sins of the tongue, such as lying, gossip, slander, etc.? If yes, then you must repent and do so immediately. This is what it means to live in light of sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. It is a very practical reality. Paul knew that the darkness in Ephesus would be very, very thick. Therefore, those believers needed to be established in sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel as the first order of business. The same is true for us. Number two, number two, and this is a follow-up from the first point. Are you seeing the word of the Lord at work in you as evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit? As we see in Ephesus, the Holy Spirit operated in conjunction with the word of the Lord. Now, let me be clear. I'm not asking, have you spoken in tongues? I'm not asking that. Those signs, such as speaking in tongues, they served for a time, especially during this transitional period, as visible manifestations that the kingdom of God had indeed come in the person and work of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. The better and more practical question that you need to wrestle with and consider in your own mind is, do you see the fruit of the Spirit in you? What are they? Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Since the Holy Spirit does work in perfect harmony with the word of the Lord, then a clear sign 
that the word of the Lord is prevailing in you is not only your knowledge, good as that may be, the greater evidence of the word of the Lord prevailing in you is when you see the Spirit wrought fruit. Doctrinal maturity is not mere intellectual knowledge, but experiential knowledge, meaning knowledge accompanied by the power of a holy life, which simultaneously puts to death what is earthly in us. Consider with me what the Ephesian Christians became as the word of the Lord took more and more root within them. In his prayer of thanksgiving for the Ephesian Christians, in his letter recorded in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and following, Paul said this about the Ephesians. He said, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Amazingly, they went from being a doctrinally immature people to being a people full of love. And what is love? Love is sound gospel doctrine prevailing in us. Show me a people of love and I will show you a people of sound gospel doctrine. This is how the word of the Lord prevailed among the Ephesians. It overcame doctrinal immaturity and turned them into a people of great faith and of great love. What else did the word of the Lord accomplish in Ephesus? Here's our second point. The word of the Lord prevailed over stubborn unbelief. Stubborn unbelief. Verses 8 through 10. Let's read it. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and and Greeks. Notice a few things here. Paul did this for three months. He spoke boldly. He spoke about the kingdom of God, which means he spoke boldly about the rule of God now manifested and executed in Christ Jesus, the resurrected and sovereign man. And this Paul did in the synagogue. But then in verse 9, the Bible says that some became stubborn and spoke evil of the way, meaning they spoke evil of the gospel. Paul, seeing this relentless opposition, he decided to stop his ministry in the synagogue and went to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, maybe a type of public school or a type of marketplace where ideas were exchanged between scholars. Very likely that what it was. Why did Paul go there? Well, for very practical reasons, the hall of Tyrannus was available daily, unlike the synagogue, which was only available once per week. This only serves to show Paul's relentless desire to spread the word of the Lord everywhere he went. And he did this for two years in Ephesus. Now, it is clear by now that the word of the Lord is always confronting opposition and enemies. Ephesus was not the exception. In his classic and truly masterful book, The Christian in Complete Armor, which I commend to you, William Gurnall identified four enemies that are always opposing the word of the Lord. He identified four of them. 
The first three were this, the seducer and the heretic. Our own lust and the afflictions, both internal and external. But the first enemy that he mentioned is the one I want to focus on, namely the persecutor, which is what Paul encountered in Ephesus. Ephesus, Haters of the truth. Let's read again their description in verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. These are the persecutors. They hated the truth and sought to make Paul's life miserable. You see, there's always going to be something bothering or hindering the pursuit of righteousness in our lives. If it is not your own lust, afflictions, and immaturity, it will be the outside world seeking to create conflict and distractions. But in this particular case, let me ask, how did the word of the Lord prevail over these mockers of the truth? Like this, and don't miss this point, it's important. How did the word of the Lord prevail over them? Well, either by their conversion or by their destruction. For instance, in Acts chapter 14, we saw that as the word of the Lord was preached at Iconium, the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. The word, as we already saw, is a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways, either for conviction of sin that leads to repentance and faith in Jesus or for hardening which leads to judgment. I want you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. And I want us to consider closely what the Apostle Paul says regarding salvation on the one hand and destruction on the other hand. Philippians chapter 1, 27 and 28. These are very strong words. Listen to what Paul says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your what? Opponents. Opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. When Paul says, this is a clear sign of their destruction, what is the word this referring to? Whatever came prior, right? And what is it that came prior? Opposition. Opposition. Opposition to the truth is the sign of their destruction. That's what Paul says. Therefore, enmity against God's word is not a sign of divine defeat, but of divine, what? Judgment. And the point remains the same. The word of the Lord always, always prevails. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are, what? Perishing, but to us who are being Saved, it is the power of God. You are either perishing or you are being saved. In both cases, the word of the Lord prevails. As William Gurnall said, 
There are four supernatural effects that the word of the Lord has upon men. First, it ransacks and rifles the conscience. Number two, it convinces and terrifies the conscience. Number three, it comforts and raises the dejected spirit. And number four, it converts the soul. This is what the word of the Lord does. It is living and active. And then Gurnall concludes and says, quote, The power of God in his word is as great in hardening Pharaoh's heart as in melting Josiah's, end quote. In the next two weeks, we will continue to look at Acts chapter 19, and we will dive deeper into what it means for the word of the Lord to prevail both through salvation and through judgment. We have two more obstacles that sought to hinder the spread of the word of the Lord in Ephesus, and we will see them in turn in the next two Sundays. I hope you won't miss this. For now, and by way of application, let me ask you once again, what effect does the word of the Lord have upon you? Here's an even more penetrating question for us to wrestle with. And this is for all of us, all of us. When the word of the Lord exposes your sin and displays it in full view before your spiritual eyes, how do you respond? Do you repent and confess or do you resent and conceal? Do you repent and confess or do you resent and conceal? May we all let the word of the Lord dwell in us richly. I leave you with these words from the song that we are about to sing together, Speak, O Lord, which will serve as our final prayer to close our time together. Please consider these words. May they be our prayer. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes. For your glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing those words.